0: Well, hey, welcome, everybody. My name is Nathan Brown. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic Church, and I'm super excited and honored to be able to break the bread of the Word of God with you today. So thanks for joining us from wherever you are. Our scripture reading for today comes out of James chapter 2, and it says this, My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. For someone enters into your assembly in fine clothing with a gold ring on his finger, and a poor person in filthy clothing also enters, and you look favorably on the one wearing the fine clothing, and you say, be seated here in a good place. And to the poor person you say, you stand or be seated there by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions Among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, did not God choose the poor of the world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Are not the rich exploiting you, they themselves dragging you into the courts? Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name of the one to whom you belong? However, if you carry out the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and thus are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in one point only has become guilty of all of it. For the one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Thus speak and thus act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is merciless to the one who has not practiced mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's God's word for us today. Now, what a time that we find ourselves in where we come across this passage in James, a a series, by the way, and a passage that was planned out months ago. And in each section of this book, what we've been trying to do is to see what James, the brother of Jesus, says that the people of God were made for. And today we're going to see that James says that the Bible says you and I were made for justice. Now maybe you've heard the old stories about maybe a famous preacher. I know I've heard a lot of these. A wealthy preacher who's sort of known for his three-piece suits and fancy cars and houses and then they disguise themselves as like a, a homeless person or a poor person and they show up to their church unrecognizable just to see how the church folks would treat them. Now, this is just one of the kind of stories that I've heard like this that, that try to illustrate the point that James is trying to make. And I'm thankful to be in a church where homeless people are a part of our community and no such test is necessary. By the way, by the way, as a side note and maybe a shameless plug, if you tune in to our weekly podcast, Tuesdays Are For Talking, this week on Tuesday, I'll be interviewing Leah Hargrave. Leah is an awesome woman. She leads our Mosaic Street ministry. She's going to be telling some great stories. She's amazing. This is definitely one you don't want to miss. All right, now back to the message. Uh, then, of course, we've probably all seen some variety of a video where a rich man, you know, comes in looking like a poor man into a place wanting to buy things that only a rich man should be able to buy, only to be turned down because he doesn't look the part. She doesn't look the part. You know, maybe you've seen uh, one of the more popular varieties where this rather ordinarily looking black man comes into a high end car dealership asking for a test drive, and he's turned down because. He doesn't look the part. And of course, the story's end predictably with the rich man displaying like a bag of cash that no one saw coming and paying for the car outright and to the surprise and astonishment of everybody who had prejudged him to not have enough. Now, I've got mixed feelings about these kind of like social experiments because on one hand, they can serve as tools for enlightenment, but on the other hand, uh, they can sometimes unintentionally reinforce the very things that they try to expose. So I do think we have to be very careful when we start using human beings to make a point. But sometimes making a point is necessary to make a difference. And I think that's exactly what James is trying to do right here. James is using a story to make a point, hoping to make a difference. So what's the point that James is trying to make? Now, before I tell you the point he's trying to make, there's a crucial built-in assumption that you have to know about, and it's right here. It's right here. The point James is about to make... Excuse me. he's making not to pagans, not to Romans, not to Greeks, not to Jews, but to Christians, to, to followers of Jesus. He's talking to people who have already come to know and believe the gospel of the risen Savior. And this is important to point out because what James is about to do is to talk to Christians about a big part of what it actually looks like to be a Christian. See, what he's not telling them actually is just believe, have your heart changed, and everything else will automatically fall into place. No, James comes in with the assumption that the heart's already been changed. These are already believers. And if that statement were true, that that's all that was needed, we frankly wouldn't need a lot of the New Testament. If that was true, we certainly wouldn't need this book of James. What James is telling them is, hey, don't use the Jesus Band-Aid. Maybe you've heard about this. The the Jesus Band-Aid is what it's called when you address a, a complex or painful problem or situation and you look at it and say, well, Jesus is the answer. Now, before I make anybody more nervous than maybe I already have, let me just say that I unequivocally affirm, we, Mosaic Church, unequivocally affirm that Jesus is the answer, period. And so does James, by the way. James died for this letter. James died trying to follow the Jesus that was the answer. James and I both affirm that Jesus is the answer and that his life, his death, his resurrection made a way for our redemption and our ultimate salvation. But within that single statement that I just made, I used the word life. And part of what it means to say that Jesus is the answer is to understand that the life of Jesus shows us how we should live as the answer. The New Testament book of Hebrews calls Jesus our forerunner, which means that he he goes before us, he runs before us and shows us the path to run on. And what James is trying to tell us in this passage right here is this, dear brother, Dear sister, as you hold to your faith in Jesus, as not in place of faith in Jesus, not instead of faith in Jesus, but along with your faith in Jesus, there's something very important that you need to not do. And there's something else very important that you need to do. And we're gonna look at both of those things right now. So here's James's point in order to, to make a difference. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. Don't do it. That's the point. That's the point he's trying to make. Do not show partiality. Do treat every person with the same value, the same worth, the same dignity. Now, I know to some degree that we all know what it means to show partiality, but I want to press a little bit deeper here. I want to look at this together today. The sin of partiality, it's a specific kind of injustice, and it's one of the most subtle types of sins. The sin of partiality is something that lives most often in the shadows of our own subconscious. and Partiality can be like a survival mechanism. Sometimes it can be masked as something that we think of as just like a normal preference. And although partiality itself is what the Bible calls sin, when it it, it gets connected to something called prejudice, it gets even worse. Whether it's a prejudice about race or age or socioeconomic status, just to name a few. I know that I have been guilty of this sin of partiality. The truth is we probably all have. And we're talking about it because James doesn't want us to fall into it. And let me give you one way that showing partiality can look. In my previous career, I was an insurance adjuster, and I spent a long part of that time as an independent catastrophe insurance adjuster. Now, uh, just a little bit of context about what that means. So I worked for an independent adjusting firm. And what these firms would do is sort of work like temp agencies for adjusters and for insurance companies. So big insurance carriers, they don't keep enough staff around. Uh, for, for They don't have enough adjusters for when catastrophic events occur. So you get a hurricane, you get a hailstorm, you get a wildfire. Basically, anytime something bad and big happens, they rely on independent adjusters to supplement their staff, in some cases even replace their staff, in handling all of those claims. Now, those contracts that they would, they would do with the firms and the firms with their employees, Uh, sometimes they could last a year or more, but sometimes they're very short run, maybe even just a few weeks. And so what this means is that you're always hustling, you're always connecting, you're always watching the Weather Channel, by the way, and you're always networking, looking for the next opportunity to go and work. Now, as with many industries, my former industry, maybe like your industry, would have a number of conferences and networking conventions every year, like places just to go and meet people, maybe training events, things like that. And I remember being at a number of these events where the adjusters were all sort of hanging out in a ballroom like a bunch of fish waiting to get fed. And then in would walk, maybe a company owner or a deployment director, somebody with the power to give this person work. And the whole room would just shift. And it didn't really shift because the person walked in the room. It, it shifted because of how people reacted to that person walking in the room. Suddenly, it's like best behavior stuff. Go get in line to kiss the ring. I mean, talk to them. Uh, it's time to do something memorable without being stupid. And now, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that this was like a positive preferential deal because there's still a lot wrong and seedy with it. But the goal was something positive. The goal was really just people trying to get work. They just wanted to work, so trying to do whatever they needed to do to meet the right person, make the right connection, make the right impression, get their name on the list for the next event that was going to need somebody like them. So to some degree, this sort of thing is understandable, right? But what happens when preferential treatment like this takes a negative turn? See, the industry that I was a part of is what many industries can be. Maybe your industry is like this, or maybe you've been affected by, or Maybe even you've participated in something that I call a good old boy system. It's just a good old boy system. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of it. Now, I've been out of this industry for quite a while, but I can tell you that when I was there, it was kind of hard to make heads or tails about who got to work and who didn't. Now, certainly the end game is always to make money. So if you're capable of making a lot of money for the company, you're sure to get a lot of attention. But beyond that, man, it was really hard to know like who was going to get to work. It felt like this big nepotistic situation where you had to know the right person, you had to impress the right people, you had to think, talk, act, look the part, and then you find yourself working. And I began to realize something over time. I was, I was honestly blinded to it. It was a blind spot for me for a large part of my career. And that was this, that in all the jobs that I worked, in the hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people that I worked alongside over a number of years all over the country, I can count on one hand, like actually this hand right here, the number of non-white people that I worked with on a peer level, on the independent Adjuster side of this industry. Now, where this really came into focus for me was on one particularly large event. Uh, And and on this event, there was a lot of staff adjusters And there were also a lot of independent adjusters So the insurance company had sent some of their own people They'd also hired a bunch of us And we all sort of formed one big team Um, and, And on this particular event, I was contracted to a huge insurance company If I were to say the name of it, every person watching this right now Would know the name of that company Now, that company had put in place some diversity initiatives And so on the staff adjuster side of things There was far more women, there were more black and brown people, there was far more diversity, and it was great. And it showed that they cared about not showing partiality. But on the independent firm side of things, man, we were as white as white could be. Now, why is it that in the exact same industry, doing the exact same line of work, In one company, there's diversity. It was prioritized. It was realized. And therefore, incredible people had been given a chance to grow and flourish and lead. But then in this other company, I would struggle to even find a black person in my peer group. And I never, I repeat, never encountered a person in leadership that was not white. And this was a very large company that I contracted through. The reason is exactly what James is forcing us to deal with here, partiality. In this case, it was partiality of skin color, of worldview, of familiarity. All those things seem to carry a little more weight than talent, intellect, or capability. I know this is hard, but being partial and then going to being not partial is hard. Jesus pointed out to us that humans have a tendency to only love those who are like them. And James shows us here that Christians, people who follow Jesus, can do the same thing. And this is why I say that saying a prayer and asking Jesus into your heart, as important as that is, that is not the cure for partiality, for prejudice, for bias, or even for sin. Now let me show you something else that's important to know about partiality. Maybe something you haven't thought about before and didn't expect, and that is this. The showing partiality doesn't just hurt others. In the long run, it hurts us as well. In other words, James goes on to remind these Christians that partiality is going to come back and bite you. Verse 6 and 7 says this, are not the rich exploiting you, and they themselves dragging you into courts. Do they themselves not blaspheme the good name of the one to whom you belong? James is showing that this group of rich people, the ones who are getting all the special spots inside the church, were the very ones causing all the problems for the church people outside the church. Oh, the irony that the very ones that they wanted to give special treatment to, that they undoubtedly wanted attention from, wanted to be recognized by, those were the very ones who were dragging them into court to destroy them and the name that they represented. And you would think that the kind of scenario James is talking about would be super obvious, but because he's talking about it, we must reasonably conclude it was not so obvious. These Christians had a blind spot when it came to preferring one group of people over another. And the sad reality about blind spots is just that. They are blind spots. They are things that we cannot see. We literally cannot see without the help of someone else. The other thing about blind spots is that blind spots can be contagious, just like they were for this group of Christians. So when we surround ourselves with people who look the same, act the same, speak the same, think the same, see the world the same as we do, we can actually unintentionally reinforce our own blind spots and reinforce our own perspectives rather than even putting ourselves in a position to have them change. This is part of the power of diverse relationships, and by the way, I don't, I, I don't want diverse relationships just for the transactional purpose of helping me to see my blind spots, as important as that is. I, I also want diverse relationships because uh, diverse people enrich my life and hopefully my life enriches theirs, you know? And for, for those of you who have kids, you, you know that it's hard to like mentally go back and remember what it was like before you had kids. Well, for me, it's hard to go back and remember what my life was like before the vast majority of, of my friends were actually not like me. Didn't look like me. My life and the life of my family has been enriched and fulfilled by people who are different than me. Their cultures, their backgrounds, their customs, their traditions have made our lives so much more full. It's a beautiful thing. But beyond the fun and the beauty and the appreciation that all of that creates, it's crucial. For us to put ourselves around people who see some things differently because they see some things differently. Now you'll notice I didn't say that they see all things differently. I said some things because there are some other things that for me are non-negotiable. That's an incomplete list, but it's things like the fact that Yahweh is the most high God that he made the heavens and the earth and the fullness thereof, that Jesus is the unique son of God and God the son, that he came to the earth and lived a perfect sinless life, that he was murdered by those he came to save when they violently sinned their sins into him on the cross. And he resurrected from the dead, defeating the curse of death and the grave, making access to eternal life again for those who choose to believe on him and be loyal to him he ascended to the heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He has sent the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, to come and live in us and among us, to lead us and guide us into truth. These are things I'm convinced of. So I'm not telling you to just take your mind and open it up to everything for influence by anyone about any subject. There are some things as truth, like unshakable, unmistakable truth those are spiritual things, eternal things, transcendent things. And back here on the ground, we live in a natural world where there's many implicative things. There's tangible things. There's sinful things that I have also believed, and maybe you have too. And in those spaces and places, I always have to ask myself this question. What if I am wrong? What if I'm wrong? What if I'm wrong about my presuppositions? What if my premise is wrong? What if my extrapolations are wrong? What if my biases are wrong? What if my subconscious is wrong? What if people who taught me the things that I believe were also wrong, and maybe they didn't even know it, and they didn't even mean to, but what if they did? And what if I am wrong? this is a question that can be scary to ask yourself, but it can also be very powerful to ask. And this is the question that James is asking his audience, too. He's asking them, those people with the money and the prestige and the power, you think those are the ones that you need to prefer? You think those are the ones who can help you to get what you want and protect what you have? You think those are the ones worth paying attention to? What if you are wrong? What if the people, the same people that you're setting up, on this pedestal and treating with partiality? What if they later come and drag you into court and blaspheme the name of Jesus who you claim to follow? What then? When they turn out not to be who you thought they were, will you realize where you went wrong? Will you see that you were once blind? Will you realize, as James puts it, that you have made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? will you admit that you had it wrong so that you can get it right? That's what he's asking them. And I ask myself the same thing. Can I admit that I got it wrong so that I can get it right? Can we admit when we get it wrong so that we can get it right? I gotta tell you, I wish so badly that we as a society and especially we as a church and we as Christians, we would stop fighting each other so hard to be right and start fighting together to get it right. But what if we don't? What's at stake if we can't get it right? James tells us. The result of the sin of partiality, the sin of prejudice, the sin of bias, is found right here in our passage in verse 9 and says this. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and thus are convicted by the law as transgressors. Friends, what is the wages of sin. Some of you know. Some of you know the scripture. Come on, say it out loud where you are right now. What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin are death. And so the sin of partiality brings death in many ways. It brings a sort of spiritual death to to the person who participates in it. It brings death to relationships. It brings death to our opportunities to reflect the fullness of God to the world around us. And in some cases, partiality brings physical death to people to actual human beings made in the image of God because they were prejudged to be more threatening, to be more scary, to be more, 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 more of all the things that we're told we should be afraid of and are killed for it. And along with all these things, maybe even worse of all, is when the sin of partiality is found in the church of Jesus Christ. It brings death to the witness and the influence that we were meant to have. It reduces our testimony to a pile of meaningless, self-serving words of something that works real good for us, but not for everybody else. So what's the solution? What is the solution? I think we all know the short answer here, right? Like, don't be partial. Don't be prejudiced. But I don't think it's quite as simple as just making a decision. This is why James goes on to quote a line. It's one of the most quoted scriptures within scripture. It's a line that's quoted by the Apostle John. It's a line that is quoted by the Apostle Paul. It's a line that is quoted by Jesus himself. And when James quotes it, he calls it the royal law, the law of the king of heaven himself. And he quotes from Leviticus 18 and says this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, it's not just in believing in Jesus that we find the key to overcoming partiality. Yes, it's the starting place, but it's not the only ingredient that we need. James tells us this key ingredient is actually to love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the key to overcoming partiality. But it's not love that's passive. It's love that is active, Love is not so much about not doing something as it is about doing the right things. For example, there's a whole list of things that I won't do because I love my wife. But my love for my wife is not actually best expressed in all the things I don't do, but in what I do do. And what's more important, uh, all the things that I don't do for her are all the things that I do do. You can ask her, I'm sure she'd be glad to tell you. You see, I love my wife with an active love towards her, a giving love, a sacrificial love, a serving love, a persistent love, a love that says, I love you far more than all the things that I don't do. And when I find myself in a situation where something I've done has communicated to my wife that maybe I don't love her as much as I said I did, I have to work overtime to undo the effects of that by loving her all the more and actively. I can't communicate I was wrong by just by not doing, although sometimes that's important. It's more by what I do do, an active love. And in the same way, in the same way, we cannot combat partiality In our own hearts or in our world simply by thinking of ourselves as a non-partial person, but by actually doing things to undo the effects of partiality. We have to actively love those around us. Not doing things that are not loving is good, but it's not enough. I mean, think about it. Would you prefer if your spouse or maybe your best friend or maybe your parents or your children simply said, I don't hate you or would you rather that they show you how much they love you? I know which one I would prefer. And when we discover that even despite our best intentions, we've fallen short in loving somebody, or we've discovered a blind spot that led to thoughts and feelings and words and actions that were unloving, or maybe were rooted in some form of partiality or injustice. In addition to just changing our minds, we have to work even harder to undo the, fe- the effects of the mistakes that we made and begin to love more in more meaningful and active ways. Just like I would with my wife, just like you would with your spouse, or like you would with your best friend, or like you would with your children. If you find yourself thinking, Nate, I just don't understand. Look, I don't hate anybody. I don't oppress anybody. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not racist. I don't show contempt towards the poor. I don't disrespect the elderly. Well, I would say that I have a lot of empathy for you because I used to think all those things about myself too. But once I began to ask the question that James pushes us to ask, what if I'm wrong about how I see people and what if I'm wrong about how I see systems? here's what I began to discover. I began to discover ways that partiality and prejudice and, yes, even racism had worked their way into my own heart and into the subconscious recesses and shadows of my own mind. And then I started to see the way systems were designed and woven into the fabric of thought and into society and social norms that were infested with these same kinds of partialities and prejudices, and as the weight of all of that began to come on me more and more and more and more, I begin to ask another crucial question. And that question is this. God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you want my family to do? What do you want my church to do? But back to the only person or thing in this entire world that I can control. God, what do you want me to do? And the God who never changes answered like a thunderbolt from heaven. Through his word, he's already written. And he said this, has he shown you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And I learned, I learned from this passage that I needed to do three things let me give those to you right now. Number one, see the injustice. I need to listen to the experiences of those on the underside of power, wherever that is, to help me see. If you think it's not there, then maybe ask yourself what I ask myself, what if I'm wrong? I needed to allow the lived experiences of others to help shape my thoughts about a thing, about many things. So in the same way, I encourage you to invite others to share their lived experiences with you and to allow their experiences to influence and shape your thoughts, just like you would want them to let your experiences mean something to them. Number two, I have to demand impartiality of myself. I need it and you need to actively search your own heart for partiality, for bias, yes, for prejudice. We all have them in some way. So identify them in your own heart and then demand of yourself that you walk in repentance from them. That means to walk away from them. And number three, act where you can. You know, maybe you've noticed this as I've noticed this, but I can't take on every single injustice that's out there. There's so many of them. There's injustices against women. There's injustices against children. There's injustices against the unborn. There's unjust things that happen towards the elderly. There's injustices against the poor. There's injustices against people of color. But as the old starfish story goes, you can do for one what you wish you could do for all. So friends, brothers, sisters, do something. Do what you can, but do something. Maybe right now you're saying, Nate, that's a lot. I mean, even if I start to see it, I don't really know what I can do about it. Even if I see things in my own heart that are hard to admit, I don't know how to change my heart. I don't know how to change the way that I think. And what I want to submit to you today is that in the end, it's not about just seeing and applying a principle, but by seeing a person by seeing someone James knew and by seeing someone that James saw. It's by seeing the very one who came into our midst dressed as a poor man because there was one who came from heaven into our world without stature, without wealth. He lowered himself and he came to us. He didn't wear a gold ring. There was nothing in his appearance that we should be attracted to him. And what did we do with him? We told Jesus of Nazareth, you have no place among us. And so we cast him out of the human assembly. We cast him out of the human community. We assigned him a place, a seat with the wicked, as Isaiah says. And Jesus took the place that we assigned to him as a criminal on a cross where he died for you and for me. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why Jesus died. But in part, he came the way he did he died the way he did to show us that heaven knows what it's like to experience the wicked partiality of the world. Jesus knows what it's like to be prejudged, to be exploited by the rich, to be dragged into court. And why did he let all of that happen to him when he had the power to stop it? Love. Love for you, love for me, and love for us. He showed us through his life that accomplished our salvation, through his death, which shows the crushing, crushing, crushing effects that partiality can have. And through his resurrection, he shows us that mercy triumphs over judgment. And he lives now to show us that he is a risen king. A king over a kingdom who shows no partiality. And that's why his salvation is available to all people. And when you can see that, if you can feel that today, that, friends, is what will start to change you. That is what gives us the power to lay down our partialities and to live for the one who has shown none towards us. I want to pray for you today. God, it's a weighty thing. It's a weighty thing to see darkness in our own hearts. It's a weighty thing to see darkness all around us. And God, it is hard to know where to go when we see those things. But God, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you that your Spirit was sent to be in us and among us. I thank you that you promised that the Holy Spirit would lead and guide us into all truth that would give us counsel and wisdom and courage and mercy and empathy and comfort and all the things that we need. So God, as much as I hope that for myself and for all of my friends watching, that we'd be willing to ask ourselves incredibly hard questions. And we'd be willing to let people who think differently than us speak into our thoughts. I pray most of all, not in place of, but in addition to all of those things, that your Holy Spirit, that your voice, Holy Spirit, would be the loudest voice that we hear, that you would give us wisdom that goes beyond understanding, that you would give us wisdom that comes from a different place, the kind of wisdom that can help change the place we're in, that you would give us a willingness to listen and to follow, whatever you ask of us. And may we never lose sight of all that you've done for us and who you've called us to be, a people who are made for justice. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.